Yeah. Yeah, we're going to... Uh, cards at the front of every row. Yeah, we're going to pass out cards. I'm going to briefly... If you weren't here for the first session, we went a little long, so I'm going to briefly finish uh, what we were talking about there, and then we'll start taking questions. So feel free to write your question down while I'm talking, as long as you can still listen to me very carefully while you're writing your questions down. Um, Okay, so we were just talking a little bit about this issue, issue of homosexuality and how it works and plays into what Brian and Blake were talking about with sanctification. And, you know, I had said, you know, one of the big questions that comes up is, is this a choice? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? We talked a little bit about the genetic component that uh, might be, but we don't see a lot, really a reputable study talking about that. We talked about environmental, that particularly there are some environmental factors particularly how one uh, relates to the same-sex parent. And uh, we said often, uh, most of the studies are showing that most homosexual men in particular failed to bond at the really critical time with that same-sex parent. And so as they approach adolescence in particular, they are looking for an emotional and a physical uh, bond with the same-sex parent. And, And often it's not initially sexualized, and that's why... Uh, these boys will tell you, yeah, I, I felt this as long as, and women too, I've been this way as long as I can remember, because it's not initially a sexual sort of thing. It actually relates more to their identity and perception of relationship. And so they're looking for often an older man of the same sex to come along and to just care for them and to love them as a father would. And one of the unfortunate things that can happen, and in many cases, about 35% of homosexual men report being molested by older men while they were um, teenagers. 75% of them report their first sexual experience with a male being prior to age 16. So in other words, as they approach the real critical phase of their life where they begin to question their identity as well as they begin to understand issues of sexuality, their first experience, often if it is either an older man who is unfortunately a predator or even somebody that's close to their age, that comes along that they bond with, they, they sexualize the emotional and uh, relational and physical components of those relationships with the same sex where um, they identify more, in a sense, with the female side of uh, humanity, but they sexualize their relationships with males because it's, it's mysterious and it's the other. Same thing on the reverse side often with women. All right, so that's kind of the environmental aspect of this. However... And this is where I want to break down behaviors themselves, as the point was made earlier. Behaviors are choices. So regardless of my propensity, whether I have a propensity to lust or a propensity to alcohol or gambling or any of these things, there's also this uh, behaviors are choices. And uh, many studies and many uh, things have borne out that um, homosexuals can genuinely find change and righteousness and holiness. And uh, one of the things I didn't mention at the beginning, and now that I've kind of gone through this, I want to mention is, typically, you, I want to break out, when we're talking about homosexuality, there are three kind of factors to talk about. One is simply this issue of attraction. In other words, a person may feel attracted to those of the same sex to any type of degree, and yet not um, identify themselves as gay and not act out on that. Um, the second aspect would be this identity issue, and this is where a person goes beyond, I'm simply attracted to somebody of the same sex, but they begin to internally identify themselves as homosexual. Right? And that often is that what takes place when someone's going through adolescence. They begin to self-identify as 
either I'm heterosexual, I'm homosexual, or, or somewhere else. And so this issue of identity begins to happen. And then, of course, there's behavior itself, which is uh, acting out in sexual ways with those of the same gender. The reason I bring that up is often the attraction issues, when we ask the question, is homosexuality a choice? Attraction is often not, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, here's all the options and I'm going to be homosexual. That's not usually how it works. Usually they struggle from a very young age and going into adolescence with this attraction toward the same sex. And then at some point, they move over to identifying themselves as homosexual, and often uh, either before or after that point, they begin engaging in behaviors as well. The behaviors themselves and even the identity, those are issues of choice. How, how do I choose to identify myself? Am I a human being made in God's image and therefore designed to be in, in a marriage, in a heterosexual marriage to fulfill God's purposes? That's an identity issue. Um, and therefore, how am I going to act? That's a behavior issue. Those are choices on some level. The attraction issues initially may not be a choice, although those can even be changed over time through uh, appropriate counseling, through uh, spiritual life, through a number of these things that Brian and Blake were talking about earlier related to sanctification. So the, the idea is it is a physical, spiritual, emotional, relational issue. All of those things play into it. So if you are either struggling with the issue or you're helping somebody struggling with the issue Briefly, the, the, the things to think about are, and that's actually one of the questions, one of the first question that came up here is with steps to take to overcome homosexuality. The things that I, would, that I would say, one is begin to ask, first of all, about this question of identity. My identity is not actually primarily found in my sexuality, although uh, God has made you and me to be sexual beings. My identity is first and foremost found in being in Jesus Christ, that my identity comes from God because God made me and has a purpose for me, and that is to know Jesus and to obey him and to pursue him. And so one of the first things I think to do in this instance is to help somebody begin to challenge their identity is not actually homosexual. Their identity is in Jesus Christ. Um, and so those, those issues then, it's easier to begin to work on the behavior issues once we work on the identity issues. Um, you are not fundamentally defined by that issue. All right? And so what that means is then as we think about behavior, the, the step to take with a friend or if you are struggling with it is not first and foremost, I just need to eradicate behaviors. Behaviors are actually symptoms of how I think about myself how I think about God, um, there are symptoms of identity and other uh, factors going on. So first and foremost, I think the step is begin to pursue Jesus Christ, begin to know the word, begin to help people point themselves toward holiness. There's a great resource, um, Exodus International. They are a group, a national group that works with men and women who are struggling with this issue. And they have a website as well. And there's even a local group that meets with men here. If you have a friend or you know that this is a struggle for you. It's something I can connect you with. They have a group that meets here locally. And one of the things they'll say is that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. First and foremost, I want to pursue knowing Jesus Christ. And then as he begins to transform me through the spirit, uh, like they were saying, often my desires uh, physiologically, emotionally, spiritually, these things begin to change over time. So I don't hit the behavior first, but instead I hit identity and identification, particularly with Jesus Christ. 
and know that, that like change actually is possible and desirable. In 1 Corinthians 6, in the same context that Paul talks about homosexuality, he does say, and such were some of you, but you were sanctified, you were washed. Right? And the idea is, uh, it seems like in the church he's writing to, there were men and women who had previously practiced homosexuality that now are wa- walking with Jesus Christ. And um, a bunch of modern studies and organizations, they would bear that out. Um, and uh, I think that the biggest issue often for people simply at the beginning is just to get to stop hiding, right? to, to pull some of these issues, in a sense, out into the light in the appropriate context, in the appropriate place, requires a relationship of trust, um, of deep trust, before you can approach these issues. So if, if it's a child or if it's a friend or um, you, one of the challenges is get, get to a person to a place where they're willing to acknowledge and, and say, yeah, this is a struggle. But on the other hand, the person themselves has, has to get to a place where they're willing to do that. And that requires a deep relationship of trust. And so um, those are just a few thoughts. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of time to go into a great amount of detail on this. And I'm not the expert on the issue by any means. Um, but I would look into Exodus International. A couple of books quickly, somebody asked me. There's a great book called God's Grace and the Homosexual Next Door that's put out by Exodus International. You can find it on their website. It's a variety of authors. There's another one called 101... I think it's called 101 Questions and Answers About Homosexuality. It's put out by Focus on the Family, um, a great resource. And uh, then for kind of a biblical, exegetical perspective, there's a book that's just called Homosexuality by a guy named James DeYoung, and it's just got a biblical perspective on the issue. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll be here. I know there's some other questions that these guys are wanting to take. But first for questions based on, on that issue. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. He said, celebrate recovery. We have, there's a celebrate recovery group connected to Grace Bible Church that deals with a variety of addiction issues, um, like Blake talked about, but also they deal with the homosexual um, issue as well. And so that's a great resource. If you have friends, really in any of these areas we've been talking about, it's a great resource that we'd recommend you to. I actually got a couple questions based on our talk. Yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I hit those uh, that you guys wrote down? Um, let's see. Am I on now? Okay. Uh, more questions come around. Uh, somebody asked a great question. Uh, well, uh, what are practical steps to reverse the addictive process? So we talked about how uh, addiction has both a physical component and a spiritual component, that the way that sin works in us is it works upon our physical bodies, upon the, the way that God designed our minds. So how, how do we reverse the addictive process? Um, well, the, the big idea here, again, I'm not an expert, and, and it'll present itself in different ways. Not all addiction is identical to other addictions. And addiction, there's a scope to it. It can get deeper and more severe. But in general, when we talk about recovery from addiction, we want to remember that uh, there are these two components to addiction. There's the physiological, the biological, the chemical, physical part of addiction going on in our brains. And then there's the spiritual component. We are both physical and spiritual beings. If you want to address addiction, you've got to address both. Any treatment regimen that only deals with one of those is going to inevitably fail. Um, when, when you, for example, when you treat an unbeliever and all you're doing is treating the actual chemical processes in their brain, ultimately when you look at them, they may recover from that addictive sin only to be committing a different sin. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's self-confidence. Whatever it is, uh, they're just exchanging sin for sin. They're not truly growing in sanctification. So you, you have to address it at both sides. On, on the flip side, 
often when somebody struggles with an addiction, they might come to a church for help, and that church might only deal with the spiritual side. Well, you need a good accountability partner. Go and be, be filled. And that doesn't address the serious physiological, chemical things that have happened in their brain. So my recommendation, Brian kind of touched on this, when you're dealing with addiction, you need to treat it holistically. Um, If somebody comes to you and they're dealing with addiction, you need to, uh, first of all, point them to somebody who is an expert. Um, This would be a good place to point them to Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery, it meets Tuesday evenings at the Southwood campus. What time does it meet? 7 So Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. Southwood Campus. The benefit there is that they're going to be around people who have been in recovery for addiction. Uh, Those people are going to be able to help them assess, you know what, do you need to go ahead and go talk to somebody? Maybe maybe you need to go talk to a doctor, like Prime would say. Maybe you need to talk to a psychologist. Maybe there's some deeper things here. Maybe we need to actually take you to a drying out clinic because you're in the middle of a really bad place and you physically can't stop drinking or taking drugs or whatever it is. So um, I would encourage you to point people to Celebrate Recovery. The beauty of that program is it does deal with both the physiological side and the spiritual side. Um, so you want to address both of those. Uh, that, that model of sanctification does help us fit in the place for medicinal treatments to behavioral issues. It may be that in time they're going to come up with a pill that helps someone deal with alcoholism. That is reasonable. It's not going to fix the problem because it's both physiological and spiritual, but it could help in the solution. Maybe it could uh, help pull down the cravings and the obsession for alcohol, things like that. I think you'll see that potentially with time in all areas of addiction. That's a similar thing to smoking. People deal with smoking and often they're told, well, go get the Nicorette patch or whatever it is. Well, is that unspiritual to put on a patch? Well, no, because you're a physical being. God designed you that way. That patch could help you physically to be able to control your craving so that you can pursue God. The other side of this thing is remember whenever you're counseling somebody who's trying to recover from addiction, the absence of sin is not enough. The absence of sin does not equal holiness. Holiness equals not pursuing sin, but pursuing righteousness. So often somebody comes to you and they're dealing with an addiction. Let's say that it's a, uh, somebody dealing with a sexual addiction. And all the, all, their, their mind is focused on, I want to quit doing this sin. But that's not enough. If all they focus on is ceasing this sin, they're going to fail because that's not what God designed them to do. God designed them to pursue righteousness. So at the same time that you're helping them to deal with this addiction, this addictive behavior, you're also directing them towards opportunities to to be in the word, to serve the church. That's why it's important when people are dealing with addiction, when believers are dealing with addiction, don't cut them out. Go fix your problems, and we'll talk about how you can serve God. No, walking with the Lord, serving God, that's part of how they grow. Because remember, there's a flip side to the addictive process. As they obey, righteousness grows in its hold over them. So you want to walk them back from the negative patterns of addiction, and you want to walk them forward in the positive patterns of laying habits of holiness. So anyways, I guess my answer is do it all. It's a big thing, holistic thing. Celebrate Recovery is here to help. You don't have to be an expert. You can direct people there. Then Celebrate Recovery can direct them to the many great um, both pastoral and medical resources that we have in this community. So great question, yes. Another one that was asked, I I dealt with Romans 6 very briefly, and I think somebody wanted proof. Uh, What language differentiates the two types of slavery that Paul was talking about? Uh, Let me just point you to Romans 6 really quick. Romans 6 verses really beginning 1 through 8, 1 through 9, focuses on our position. 
Paul focuses on what's happened to us in the past. I'll just read it again. Knowing this, starting in verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, past tense, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, past tense, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We died in the past. That positionally freed us from slavery to sin. Paul's talking about the fact that our legal slavery to sin has come to an end. Then Paul makes a transition, particularly verse 12. Therefore... Anytime you see therefore, it's significant. You're, you're, you're uh, pivoting off of positional theological truths to the application. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Paul transitions in that verse from talking about what's true of us in the past to what we should do as a consequence, as a result in the present. We should not let sin reign in us. We should not give in to sin because we've been freed from it. So Paul has made that transition already by the time we get to verses 15 and 16. He's no longer talking about the past and our freedom legally from sin. Now he's talking about the present. How do we live in consequence of the freedom that Christ has gained us? So he makes that pivot. He's, he's actually going to, you know, if you read chapters 6, 7, and 8, he moves through a lot of material there. And it all kind of flows from point to point. So positional, then experiential, and then keep moving from there. So uh, I don't know if that satisfied you, but you could come talk to me later if you want to talk more about that. Um, then you asked a question about 1 John um, chapter 3, verse 6. And that's, oh, go ahead. We got more? Relate to my oh. talk, so let's go let's there Let's turn first. it over to you. Okay. I'm going to toss one more thing in on the question Blake always, just answered. That one. Bottom um, question. In the beginning of chapter 6, he, he is in the indicative mood in uh, the Greek, meaning he's describing something that is true. Okay? Verse 12, he switches to the imperative mood. That is the first, that's the first command that is issued. That begins in verse 12. So he's it's descriptive, basically 1 through 11. Verse 12, he shift to, shifts and he makes a command. Okay? And that's how you, you make that distinction there. Um, we're dealing with questions first that relate to uh, the talks we just finished, so, uh, and then we'll get into some broader theological issues. One that was asked is basically, what is the, uh, the origin of conscience? Um, so Freud claims the superego, which is the seat of conscience, uh, is developed through our relationship with significant others. In other words, uh, it's created through our experiences. Romans 1 seems to argue that we are born with a con- conscience. What's the biblical perspective? Let me give you a few verses that relate to conscience. Uh, that are significant to answer this question. One is Hebrews 10, verse 22, Romans 2, verse 15. Romans 2, verse 15, reads like this. It says, In that they show, that is, Gentiles, not having ever read the law of God. Okay, Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. That's the definition of what conscience does. Okay? It accuses and defends. It says, yeah, you're on the right path. Maybe no, you're on the wrong path. Okay, that's what conscience does. And it says Gentiles who've never ever heard any uh, propositional statement of this is how God thinks, this is what God says is true or valuable or right. The law of God is still written on their hearts. And what he's talking about is not the specific regulations of the law, but the transcendent, timeless principles of the law are written on somebody's heart. Okay, that's Romans 2.15. And then Hebrews 10, verse 22, says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what has happened is the conscience, which existed, was cleansed. So you're born with conscience. Um, 
You look at a child's face when they do something that's wrong. That's conscience. They, they, they know. There's the reaching, you know, don't touch the stove. That's conscience, okay? And through time, that conscience is strengthened and it is developed or it is weakened, okay? And the result is then we make poor choices. Now, it's interesting, we, you know, in our last session, we were relating the physiology, the material person to the immaterial. It's interesting, I remember reading a, a study from a psychological journal several years ago that uh, was studying people who had had damage done to the emotional center uh, of their brain where emotion is, you know, what lights up when you feel. Damage was done there. The result was that they were in a, unable to um, make decisions, couldn't make choices. Okay. The point is that there's an interrelationship between emotion and will. You don't choose to do something unless at some level you want to do it and you believe that it will give you some benefit as an addiction, even though you know it's going to be damaging in the long term, you know you're going to get a short-term pleasure, and so you choose the short-term pleasure over the long-term benefit. Okay? But that just describes the interrelationship. Now, uh, then one kind of qu- a question that's kind of generic but relates to what we talked about previously. Actually, I'm, Blake, if you want to chip in, uh, chime in on this one in just a second. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Blake talked about that in relationship just to uh, sanctification and addiction. So, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So it's an imperative, work out your salvation. And he's, obviously he's not talking about justification, that is past salvation. God has declared you righteous through faith and you are put in right relationship with him. That is the work of God on your behalf that you enter into through faith. But he's talking about your participation with God in the process of becoming more holy or more like Jesus. And then he goes on and says, For it is God who is at work in you, uh, both to will and to work, or both to desire and to do for his good pleasure. And so you see there, the the question is, if God is working in me to change my will, to what extent are my choices meaningful? Well, my choice is to cooperate with the work of the Spirit or to move independently of the work of the Spirit. And if I cooperate with the work of the Spirit, then I am working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm realizing there is significance, fear and trembling, to the choices that I make to resist the work of the Spirit, or to cooperate with the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit of God dwelling in me, since I am a believer, is constantly speaking to my spirit, uh, speaking to my conscience, speaking to my mind, instructing and guiding me, and I am listening to that voice or resisting that voice. To the degree that I cooperate that vo- with that voice, I am progressively, slowly being transformed into the image of God. Okay. Now, um, this relates to uh, how, do, how do spiritual disciplines function? How do they work? And how do they work in a manner that's not legalistic but is grace-oriented? Well, spiritual disciplines are, in essence, putting my, my mind, my, my conscious choice of thought, and my physical body in a place where I can most easily cooperate with God. Okay? might be a simple definition. So, let's take one that we... Uh, all practice so frequently fasting. Um, uh, should I fast? Should I not fast? Well, you know, it's uh, between you and the Lord. It's a biblical practice that has, it has a lot of precedent. Um, you're not told you must fast or you must fast every Tuesday or whatever. You must fast for three days at a time. There, you're not told. But there's, a, there's a, a, a process through fasting that I think helps us understand the relationship between the physical and the spiritual or the material and immaterial 
man. When I choose to, to say no to a really natural and normal bodily longing, that is to fill my stomach with food, which I need, but I say no to that, I train my, my mind, my spirit, and even my body understands that I can say no to my most fundamental needs, let alone my desires. Okay? And I'm training myself to say no to that and yes to God. And I'm using that time of fasting to focus my attention and let my mind be transformed, renewed, progressively, really intensively focusing at that period of time. While I'm saying no to a desire of the flesh, which is both flesh can be either my physical being, right, or my bent to live independently from God, I'm saying no to all such desires. And I'm exercising that muscle, which is will, which is obviously related to emotion. I'm believing that there's something good I'm going to get from it, and that makes me pleased in some respect, joyful. Okay? And that's how spiritual disciplines function. The exercise of fasting itself doesn't make me more spiritual. And you are not more spiritual because you fast more often or longer. That's legalism. Legalism is looking at somebody else and saying, you know, Bill never fasts, but I do. I'm obviously more spiritual than Bill. Bill, what you should do is you should fast every Tuesday and you should do so for three days at a time. That's legalism. It's not a biblically declared standard whatsoever. I'm I'm making a measure of righteousness based upon a behavior. That's legalism. Legalism for me or for Bill. Uh, When I read the word, I'm giving the spirit access to my mind. There are atheists who have read the Bible backwards and forwards. It doesn't make them more like Christ because their heart is not listening receptively. As a believer, I can read and read and read and read and read and read the word, but if I've chosen ahead of time, I'm not going to obey, but I'm just doing it because I'm in a Bible study and I'll feel guilty if I go to my study and I haven't done any of my homework. My motivation is totally out of whack, which God knows. My group may not. They may go, wow, he's read a lot and he knows all the answers. Spiritual, they don't know going on in my heart. On the other hand, when I come with a receptive heart and I say, God, speak to me through your word, and I read and I ponder and I meditate and I choose to obey, I'm giving God access to my thoughts, my emotions, the choices that I make, and I'm being transformed through, through the renewing of my mind. Okay? But just reading the Bible in and of itself does not make you more spiritually mature. Or again, I say to Bill, Bill, what you should do is you should read the Bible in a year. You should read the Bible four times in a year. You should do 20 chapters a day, and then you would become spiritual. Bill, you don't, therefore you're less spiritual than me. Legalism, legalism, legalism. Okay. So, does that, does that make sense in the context of Philippians too? Okay. All right, Maddie. There were a couple of remaining questions just on this discussion of homosexuality from earlier. One of them was, how can you witness to a homosexual person that has potential interest in you? And uh, that's a great question. That's actually a very real issue when, when we talk with people who are trying to minister to their friends who are struggling with this issue, is that um, that's a very real possibility. And so I want to answer um, with kind of hopefully a balanced perspective. On the one hand, part of what is critical for a person who's struggling with homosexuality, part of what is critical in their process of transformation is that they learn how to develop healthy and godly relationships with people of the same sex. 
So one of the worst things that I think you could do is totally separate yourself from the person and say, all right, we're no longer going to be friends and pull completely away. Um, There may be, now I want to clarify that by saying if there are instances where, if this is a situation where the two of you have engaged in immoral behavior together, there may be a place for that. But I'm assuming we're talking about a situation where one person is not homosexual and not struggling with that and the other is. I think that a friendship can and should be pursued, um, and I think it's actually helpful for that person's growth process. Um, Sometimes we are afraid, in a sense, that, um, for lack of a better terminology, that maybe the the homosexuality will rub off on me or or I will somehow become that way. That's not likely to happen. However, I would say the balance of what I'm saying is this, that you probably should establish some appropriate boundaries in that relationship. Um, Say to the person, very clearly, I want to make it very clear to you that our relationship is we are friends and we're brothers or we're sisters in Jesus Christ and and this is not going to proceed to a sexual relationship um, as we go forward, especially if you get to the place where you sense that the person is beginning to be attracted to you. I don't know that you need to say, hello, my name is Matt, by the way, you know, once the relationship begins to proceed in your friends, there may come an appropriate time, and, and often as you begin to get close, to make that clear, and, and also to establish certain appropriate boundaries, just like you would maybe with a member of the opposite sex, where, say, we're not going to be in my apartment or in my bedroom alone together uh, without other people around. We're going to establish some boundaries to this relationship that are healthy, but we still want to have a healthy and godly friendship. Because I do think, again, part of what uh, a person who's struggling with this issue needs to, to learn to do is develop healthy, good relationships with person, people of the same sex. And so sometimes the best thing for them is to get into a small group of guys or girls that will gather around them and really be close friends. So that's why I want to emphasize, please don't run away from your friends who are struggling with this issue, but continue to be their friends, but challenge them in ways that are healthy and godly, so that they can see what that kind of relationship looks like. Yeah, modeling is definitely a lot of it, and then also just providing in their life a gap that might have been missing when they were growing up, which is a, a, a healthy non-sexual relationship with some of the same gender, someone of the same gender. So that's good. Um, the next question is a little bit more complex, but can the religious conservatives be wrong on gay rights as they? were, it says are, I'm assuming it means were, about slavery. Um, That's a complicated question because there there are some historical issues and political issues and theological issues kind of all mixed in there together. There's actually an assumption behind the question that I want to answer at the beginning. And the assumption is that all of the religious conservatives were pro-slavery in the 19th century. Um, If you have been told that, that's a misrepresentation of history. Um, in fact, if you, I, I'd really recommend, there's a great movie that came out a few years ago called Amazing Grace. It's about William Wilberforce over in Britain. And, and what you'll see from that movie actually was it was the religious conservatives who were the first ones to stand up and say, uh, enslaving an entire race of, of our fellow human beings is sinful and wrong. And they used the scripture to do that. Um, in the United States... The situation was um, a bit complex. It wasn't that all of the Christians were pro-slavery and everybody else was anti-slavery. It actually was, was mixed, and it tended to be mixed upon northern-southern dividing lines. 
You did actually, though, have some Southern men. Robert E. Lee would be a good example of an individual who felt personally that slavery was wrong, but he fought for the Confederacy because of his love for his state and for his home. And so there, there were a bunch of complicated factors going on. In the North, in particular, you, you really did have a number of conservative Christians who were saying uh, slavery is a sin and it's wrong and it needs to end. Um, you had some in the South, uh, but often the, there is some truth to the fact that often in the South there were biblical arguments that were made to support the existence of slavery ongoing. Um, And one of those arguments was simply that the Bible nowhere commands that all slavery be overturned, um, which is a true statement. The Bible nowhere says that. However, as you look at the scripture, the Bible also nowhere commands that slavery be practiced either. Um, And that's a critical distinction, first of all, to make, is that there's a difference between those things that are permitted in scripture and those things that are commanded. And, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. But the other issue is, as you look throughout the scripture, what you see is that, especially as you proceed toward the New Testament, in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, there's an increasing, uh, there is an increasing movement throughout the scripture to say, um, all men and women are created equal on some level. That not, Created equal isn't the best terminology, actually. All men and women are made in the image of God and therefore given inherent value. That means we treat men and women with respect and dignity, and uh, we treat them as human beings. So read the book of Philemon, for example, and you can see Paul actually encouraging Philemon to treat his escaped slave no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Jesus Christ. And even as you read through the New Testament, even though there was this system still in place of slavery, the men and women are encouraged to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The other thing that is critical to know is that slavery, as we read it in the Bible, culturally was very different from 19th century slavery here in the United States. Um, It wasn't uh, that there was all one race of people that were deemed inferior and therefore enslaved. Most slavery was actually debt slavery, for example. I would go into a great deal of debt and I have a choice. I can either go to prison uh, for a long period of time to pay off that debt or I can indenture myself out to an individual and work the debt off. That's what a lot of slavery was. Sometimes slavery was prisoners of war. There were all kinds of things going on. All that to say, here's, here's what I'm getting at, is that I, I think that we can make a clear biblical case that slavery as it was practiced in the 19th century in this country was wrong because it operated on the value system that one group of people was inherently inferior to another group of people and because it, it used people for our own selfish ends in a way that God didn't intend. So those who were arguing for African slavery in the United States, I I do think you can make a biblical case that they were wrong. Now, with the homosexuality issue, again, this is where this issue of permission versus commandment makes a big difference. Slavery is permitted in certain circumstances in the scripture, but it's nowhere commanded, thou shalt have slaves. If you were here in the first session, we talked about homosexuality. It is, I believe, clearly commanded in the scripture that homosexuality is wrong, both New Testament and Old Testament, and it's, it's ongoing, and it's not just certain aspects of it. All right? So that's a clear command. Now, on the issue of uh, you know, gay rights, I'm not sure who, who wrote the question or exactly what you mean by that. Um, if by rights you mean the person has the right to you know, have a job, has the right to work um, without constantly being harassed or beaten up or or things along those lines. Basic human rights. I think our Constitution guarantees basic human rights for everybody. If by rights you mean 
um, for example, what's going on with marriage. We could debate that for a long time, but I would argue that marriage is actually not a constitutionally guaranteed right for any group of people. All right? And in fact, that marriage is fundamentally a religious institution and not a governmental institution. And so uh, when the government begins to say, this is who can get married and who has to marry whom, that's where I would take issue with that, not on a rights basis, but simply on a constitutional basis. So there's also a political and legal aspect to that as well. Um, I don't know, again, I don't know who wrote the question. I hope I've answered it sufficiently. I don't have a great deal of time to go into every aspect of it, but if you want to ask about that a little bit more, or if, if you wrote it and you want to ask me about it directly, I can um, follow up on that a little bit, because I know it's kind of a complex question. So. All right, well, if you'd like to, I'll be up here afterwards, and we can talk about it more. I got a few of your questions that you guys wrote on some related subjects. Uh, we had a number of questions on the subject of what we call eternal security. Uh, once saved, always saved. Is it possible for a person who has trusted in the gospel to lose their salvation or give back their salvation? Let me cover just a couple things that were brought up on this. One of the people who wrote this question brought up the passage in 2 Timothy that's uh, always helpful to look at. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It's a a poem or a hymn uh, that Paul writes. He says it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Uh, I wanted to cover this one because it's also another example of what Mark taught us about last night, that hourglass form of biblical literature. We call it a chiasm. It looks like a Greek X, uh, letter chi. Um, It's often used throughout biblical scripture. You talk about subject A, then you talk about subject B, then you talk about subject B again, then you talk about subject A again. And that's why this poem works. The first part and the fourth part are related. The second part and the third part are related. First part and fourth part are about your eternal security. If we died with him, that is Christ, we will also live with him. Not we might or we could, we hope, but we will live with him. As Christ has been resurrected in the presence of the Father, so we too will be resurrected in the presence of the Father in the future. We will. Um, Same point is made in verse 13, the fourth part of the poem. If we are faithless, so whether or not we are obedient, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. What is Paul saying? He remains faithful to his promise to give us life. It's, it's parallel to part one. He promised that he would give us life. He remains faithful to that because he can't deny himself. His promise to give us life is not based upon our faithfulness. It's based upon his faithfulness to his character. Our eternal security is based on the eternal faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. So lines one and four are saying there's nothing that you can do to lose life. You will have life forever with God, resurrection life, because it's based on God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. That's lines one and four. Lines two and three are saying something different, something related. If we, uh, if we endure, and, and you have to look at the context of Second Timothy, he's not talking to a generic group of people for which he doesn't know. Are they saved? He's talking to Timothy. He knows the guy's saved. He knows he's talking to a believer. Timothy, if you endure the suffering that you're going through, you're a pastor of the church in Ephesus. It's very difficult. It's a pagan city. You face persecution and opposition every step of the way. If you endure in this incredibly difficult ministry, we also will reign with Christ, reign, rule. When Jesus returns to earth and establishes his kingdom, which is the fulfillment of biblical scripture, we will share in his rule over the earth. 
Okay, so this isn't get to heaven. This is rule over the earth. This is a different thing. If we endure in this life, we will reign with Christ in the next. Uh, flip side, if we deny Christ, which how could Timothy deny Christ? Well, by not proving faithful, by succumbing to the opposition and persecution of the culture around him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Deny us what? Life? No. Life is dependent upon the faithfulness of God. He will deny us what came right before the right to rule with him. So lines two and three are talking not about getting to heaven, uh, not about the possession of eternal life. They're talking about the privilege, the opportunity of ruling with Christ in his coming kingdom. So it's actually one of the most succinct statements of the Christian life you'll find anywhere. It's perfectly balanced. God's eternal security. We, we cannot lose our salvation with our responsibility as believers to obey. We believers will be judged by Jesus Christ. It will be terrifying. Remember Philippians 2 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because we will be judged by him. Not for whether we receive life, that's guaranteed, but for whether or not we get to share with Christ in his coming kingdom. So that's what's going on in that passage. It, it argues for both eternal security and the responsibility of believers. So it's a, a one of the most, it's really a great passage to use. Um, had a related question, multiple ones here. Uh, somebody asked about questions that kids ask at summer camp. Can I lose my salvation? The answer is obviously no. It's based on the faithfulness of God. Lots of passages you could take them to. Uh, just a reminder, some of your best are like John 10, uh, about the fact that uh, the Father is our shepherd. We can, or Jesus is our shepherd. We are secure in the Father's hands. Romans 8, the end of the chapter, uh, Paul says very explicitly, uh, what can separate us from the saving love of Christ? He lists out a ton of things and concludes, no created thing. Um, you are a created thing, which means that you cannot choose to separate yourself from the saving love of Christ. If you've believed the gospel, it is not within your range of options as a human being to separate yourself from eternal life. You, you can't walk away from eternal life. That's, you know, what if a person chooses, he's a believer for years and years, and then he decides he didn't believe it, he becomes an atheist. Well, if he really had believed the gospel, then he can call himself an atheist, but he has eternal life. Because it's not based on his continuation of belief. It's based on God's faithfulness to his own character. So um, good questions you guys are asking. Uh, boy, then a, a shotgun question. Do babies, people who commit suicide, people that have never heard about Jesus go to hell? <laughs> it's three questions in one. Um, couple different, actually all three are different questions to address. Let me address them in, in different orders here. Uh, people who commit suicide, suicide is a sin like any other. If they trusted in the gospel, they go to heaven. Because life is not based upon their faithfulness. It's based upon God's faithfulness to his character. So if a believer commits suicide, he goes right into the presence of God. Not that suicide is something to take lightly, but it's, it's a sin like any other. We can't forfeit our salvation through anything we do. Uh, do people that have never heard about Jesus go to hell? This we would, I'm kind of just running through this, so I can slow down if you guys want. But uh, I would take a person to Romans chapter 1. And if you were here on Sunday morning... Um, uh, last Sunday morning, uh, talked a little bit about this in the subject of election, talked about how all human beings who can see God in creation, so we're not talking about babies yet. I want to pause on that one, but all human beings reach some state of uh, conscious awareness where they can see God in creation. If you're talking to a fellow college student who says God doesn't exist, well, you're, you're denying what you see. The Bible's very clear. You see God in creation. You're choosing to deny it for the sake of unrighteousness. That's they, don't, they won't admit that, but that's what's going on. They're choosing to deny it. God has made himself clear in creation, and they have chosen to reject what they see of God. Their rejection makes them culpable. Okay, so um, does a person go to hell for not hearing the gospel? Well, no, a person goes to hell for rejecting whatever God has revealed of them. 
If, if they, you know, you've got the people always bring up the Aborigine in Australia. What about them? They've never heard the gospel. Well, but they've heard the revelation of God and they've rejected it. I, I feel very confident in saying that I, I believe as I read scripture, if there was an Aborigine in Australia who never heard the gospel and he saw God in creation because God has made himself clear and he worshiped God rather than an idol or himself. He truly bowed the knee before the creator and said, I worship you. Don't know who you are, but I worship you. I'm absolutely confident God would get that person the gospel. We hear stories all the time in the Muslim world of, of Muslim people having dreams of Jesus revealing himself to them. I think that's God working. That person responded to the limited amount of information he had about God and creation. God provided the rest, the gospel through a dream, so that that person could be saved. God is faithful. If there's a person seeking him, God will provide the gospel. Now, when you look at Romans 1 and you study the subject of predestination, you know the only reason they're seeking God is because they're elect. God is already at work in that person, helping them to respond to what they see of God in creation. So, person who doesn't hear the gospel, do they go to hell? Well, yes, but not because God withheld something from them, but because they rejected what they had. They freely chose to reject what God had revealed in creation. Now, that argument in Romans 1 leaves out the person who cannot perceive God in creation. That would be a baby, an infant, a child of a certain young age, or perhaps the mentally incapacitated. They don't have the mental ability to see God in creation. What about that person? There's not a lot of biblical revelation about that. God hasn't told us a lot about that. There's some passages that might touch on it, but uh, really hard to tell, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but in general, we do have in the Bible very clearly laid out a, a compassionate, graceful, gracious, merciful God. Um, and so I, I tend to hold that if a person doesn't fit the, the spiral of Romans 1, if they don't fit the paradigm of Romans 1, then I, I personally believe that under the grace of God, they probably will be saved, but I can't prove it to you biblically. So I, I have hope that that's the case. They have not chosen... You know, I look at my kids. They've not chosen to reject God and creation. They have no concept of what those words even mean. So they are inherently sinners, so they don't get to heaven because they're just good. They get to heaven because Christ's blood would be upon them. I think that's the case. I can't prove it to you beyond a biblical shadow of a doubt. Please. Uh, Please. Because uh, my next this question I want to address relates to uh, your last issue of, of infants. Um, and I'll read the question in just a second. But the reason that uh, any person spends eternity in hell is, is not because uh, they're non-elect, but because they choose to disbelieve. If you look at John three sixteen through 18, you know, three sixteen, God so loved the world, and in John's theology, the world or cosmos is um, all that is set against God. Okay, and that's going to come up in a little while when we discuss uh, limited, unlimited atonement. Okay? God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So what's the condition? Just faith, belief. Okay? So when you, when you see believe or faith, that's the same word in Greek. It says, for God did not send, send his son into the world to judge the world, uh, at least not yet, right? He didn't send him the first time to judge the world. He will judge the world later, but he didn't send him to judge, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So someone uh, ends up spending eternity separated from God because they chose to disbelieve in the name of the only begotten Son of God, or as Blake said, they chose to disbelieve in the revelation that God gave them clearly in creation. And they rejected that, and so God didn't give them more light because they said no. Okay, and as he said, you see 
you know, anecdotal evidence, historical evidence uh, throughout the world, whether it's Muslims having a vision or dream or Hindus uh, seeing Jesus, a very close friend of mine had a vision of Jesus. In his vision, he was weeping because a man had handed him a piece of paper that had all of his sins listed upon it, and the bottom line sentence was death. And then a man came up to him and said, don't you realize I have died for these? Took him away. He's a Hindu man. And uh, my friend was Hindu, and this man took him away. Later on, he, he heard the gospel, and he realized in his dream that was Jesus that he saw who was coming and taking away that paper and destroying that. Okay? So you hear stories about that. You hear, uh, if you read an old book called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson, he documents the, the salvation of entire villages whose Spirit of God had prepared their hearts. They had put up a building because God had revealed to their village that he would send someone who would tell them the true way to worship him. So they made the building so they were ready to worship. And when the missionary came and spoke Jesus, they said, thank you for coming. We were waiting for you. The whole village believes, and you have a, a revival. Okay? So it seems that uh, from Scripture and from history, what you see is when people respond to the light given, God continues to reel more and more and more. And the reason that a person is separated from God for eternity is not because they're non-elect, but because they choose to disbelieve. Now, the, the relationship of that issue to um, Blake is talking about with infants is infants don't have the capacity to see revelation and choose to disbelieve. On the other hand, Christ has paid for all sin, okay? uh, including the consequence of Adam's sin. It's paid for for them. So God can be just and give them eternal life because they have not chosen to reject. So in my understanding, understanding just the general nature and character of God and what Christ has done on the cross, all infants or those who don't have the capacity to make a moral decision to believe or disbelieve in Jesus would, would have eternal life. Okay? That's how I would understand it. But again, you know, you can't make a, a slam dunk argument biblically, but that's how I would deduce that. Now, it relates to the question, one of the questions I was given, because it has to do with sovereignty of God and human responsibility. It reads like this, Romans 9, chapter 12 through 20-ish, says, seems to suggest that God predestines or purposes people to sin or hardens hearts in order to fulfill his will. For example, Pharaoh. How then can we reconcile this understanding of his will and purpose with verses that say he desires all to know him, or further than that, how can people whose hearts have been hardened by God also be sentenced to hell by him? Uh, Someone is sentenced to hell again because they choose to reject the revelation that is given them. In the case of of Romans chapter 9, remember uh, first that the, the emphasis in Romans 9 through 11 is God's movement in and through groups of people. Gentiles and Jews. He is not primarily speaking about God's movement in individuals' lives. Now, I do believe God works in individuals' lives. Romans 9 through 11 is talking about his movement through groups of people. Romans, you are Gentiles. Why is it that you are experiencing the grace of God and that so many are coming to faith from among Gentiles? And why is it that God has chosen this nation of Israel, but they seem to be outside of the grace and righteousness of God. And Romans 9 through 11 is answering that. It's answering it by saying that God is sovereign in how he moves through groups of people. And the fact that he chose Israel to be a special people to him. Why? So that they would bless the Gentiles. Okay, So that all peoples would be blessed through him. And that's the story of that he's using as an illustration there with Pharaoh. Okay, 
It's not really even so much about Pharaoh individually, but if you look at Pharaoh individually in the Exodus account, what you see is there is actually this interplay between Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, okay? And, and there is this interchange and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And so what appears to be happening is God is, is moving Pharaoh down the path that Pharaoh has chosen to resist God. And why is he doing that? So that God can display his power and his authority over all nations through Pharaoh. And God has a right to do that, Paul argues in Romans chapter 9, because he is the potter and nations and individuals are the clay, okay? So he has the right to do that because he is the creator of all. He is the sovereign of the universe. So how do you uh, reconcile that? Reconcile is the key verb in this question here. How do I reconcile that? I don't reconcile that with human responsibility. What I say is the two are just laid out side by side. People are responsible to choose for or against God. That is why it's always put in the imperative mood again. Remember, that's, that's commandment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And God desires all to be saved, none to perish. He wants all to repent and to turn and have a relationship with him. And that is why Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sins, for all people, for all times, and he has given all a capacity to choose. Okay? They can choose. And they can choose because God is revealing himself and God is initiating with all. Jesus Christ said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So we're responsible. And how do we reconcile that with election? I don't. I I don't reconcile the two. I just say that both both are taught very clearly in Scripture, that God is sovereign and he chooses and that all are responsible. Now, uh, I want to tie in then one more question that I'm going to give it to Matt. question related to uh, unlimited versus limited atonement. Okay? Let me read the question, and then I'll I'll explain what some of these terms mean. Can you please explain unlimited atonement? I grew up believing in limited atonement and cannot reconcile the limited view with the problem of whether if Christ died for all, why was his sacrifice not sufficient for all? If God elects people, why not die just for those, that is the elect? And why must people be punished in hell if Christ already was punished for everyone? Um. Bottom line is, he was punished for everyone, and they're responsible to believe. Let me take you to First uh, John chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Jesus Christ, he himself, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Um, limited atonement means that uh, Christ only paid for the sins of the elect. Okay, limited, only paid for, or particular redemption. He only paid for the sins of the elect. Okay, unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement, he paid for the sins of all people, elect and non-elect. One of the key verses is First John 2, verse 2. Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation, which means uh, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Okay? God is a holy God, hates sin. His wrath will follow sin. The wages of sin is death, that is separation from God. Jesus is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And as the argument goes, what um, John is talking about there when he says world is he's just uh, talking about the world of the elect. So not just our sins, that is, you who are listening to this letter the first time, but also for the sins of the whole world of the elect. 
but as I, I alluded to earlier, world in John's theology is, is cosmos and it's all anti-God. Okay? So when John says the sins of the world, he means the sins of absolutely everyone because all of us were at least originally categorized as anti-God. Okay? And Jesus Christ is a propitiation for those sins, for those who believe and for also all the sins of the world. Now one other key passage is um, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people. He's alluding to uh, Old Testament. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Okay? Clearly he's talking about non-believers who've actually introduced destructive heresies uh, into the church. And it says they, these, they have even denied the master that is Jesus, who bought them. That's the word for redemption. Okay? So they reject the one who redeemed them. Okay, one of the other terms for um, limited atonement is particular redemption. That is, Jesus Christ redeemed a particular group of people or a limited group of people. And Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, no, there are those who actually reject the one who did, in fact, redeem them. So it's possible, he's saying, and even does happen, in fact, that there are those who have been redeemed who reject Jesus. In other words, he died to pay the sins of all people for all times. Now, the end part of that question, it, uh, it says, well, the middle here, um, how was his sacrifice not sufficient for all? Well, the fact is his sacrifice was sufficient for all. It doesn't become effective for all because not all believe. But it is, in fact, sufficient for all because it does pay for the sins of all. Now, this relates to, um, okay, so if Christ paid for that sin, and he paid for it in a sense that disbelief is a sin, how is it that they spend eternity apart from him? Well, there's a great uh, illustration of this from, from U.S. history, and I've used this in a sermon before. I can't remember all the details of it, but um, there was a man who was sentenced to death, and he was issued a presidential pardon, and he chose to reject the pardon and to be executed, and his case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Justice Marshall wrote, basically, a pardon is not effective unless it's accepted. Okay. The pardon was sufficient for him to experience life, but he chose to reject the pardon. And as a result, the man was, in fact, executed. He lost life. And the same is true with our relationship with Jesus Christ. He has redeemed, that is, paid the price for all, but not all choose to accept that payment. Um, this relates, uh, I think, fundamentally when we get into these, uh, the issues of um, Calvinism and the five points. Uh, the fundamental issue is our understanding of the nature of the sovereignty of God. And in a Calvinistic understanding, uh, sovereignty is very deterministic. Uh, I had a friend who was a real strong five-point Calvinist, and he said, you cannot resist the will of God. No person can resist the will of God. And I said, well, if that's the case then why is there sin at all? Because sin couldn't be the will of God. Well, if a person's a really consistent Calvinist, and I have had friends who've been this consistent in their Calvinism, they would say, no, in fact, God is the cause also of sin. Okay? Gave you an illustration of this last year. Gave you a couple quotes from, uh, from John Piper. He did a, a passion series, uh, you know, aimed at college students, 40,000 college students there, and he stood and he pounded on the pulpit and he said, God ordains sin. God ordains sin. 
And he said it about six or seven times during the course of the message. It wasn't an accidental point. He didn't, ooh, you know, because sometimes we say things and we're, well, I didn't say that quite right. And we didn't, and we want to kind of go back the next week and go, I didn't say how that happened. No, he was very clear. God ordains sin. He's the author of sin. He has to be. Because he's absolutely sovereign and nothing can occur outside of his will. And there is sin. It does exist. Okay? That is a very deterministic view of sovereignty. My understanding of sovereignty is that God has the right to do anything that he chooses. And he has the power to do anything that he chooses. And because he has that right and he has that power, he can and he will do what he chooses. And the only way that we know how he, in fact, exercises his sovereignty is by looking at the stories and the data of Scripture. Okay? A sovereign God could say, you will all be robots. You will just think you have choices. And it may feel like you have choices, but you don't have choices. You are, in fact, robots. A sovereign God could create such a universe. Couldn't he? Right? If we understand sovereignty correctly. Or a sovereign God could say, no, I choose to create a universe in which I set these things in motion and I step back and I don't interfere whatsoever. I'll let choices take their natural course. Good. Deism. Uh, I would argue that a sovereign God could also say, I'm sovereign over all the universe, and then I'm going to create within my sovereign universe these really peculiar creatures that will be made in my image, the only ones made in my image. And part of what being made in my image is, uh, is that they will have this capacity to make real and genuine moral choices with consequences. And I can do that because I'm sovereign. Within my sovereign realm, I'm going to make many sovereigns. I'm going to make, you know, uh, they have, it's not absolute sovereignty because I'm not going to give them an absolute free range of choices, but I will give them some choices to make with real consequences, and they will do so, even the significant choice of choosing to have relationship with me or not have relationship with me, because then it will be a genuine relationship. It won't be me with robots, but me with beings created in my image, we can have a genuine choice, love, relationship. And I think the data of Scripture argued that is the kind of sovereignty, that is the kind of way that God exercises his sovereignty. And he doesn't reconcile. How does that really work? What are the, what are the mechanisms? He doesn't say. I, I would argue that um, I don't know that we will ever in our minds be able to put the two together. I don't think ever. That's my... You know, this, I'm getting into supposition now, but in my opinion, because we're finite creatures and this idea of God being um, eternal and unbounded by time and being able to see all things that will occur in the future and um, make choices and cause things and yet have these creatures that make choices and they pray and something happens, they share their faith and something happens, they're commanded to do these things and consequences result, you know. God's hand is moved through prayer. Just read Daniel. Crazy. Um, that's how he's chosen to act. I don't know that we'll ever in our minds be able to put the two exactly together. You know, we have this idea we'll see God, or at least Christ face to face, and see an image of the glory of God, and then we'll get all our questions answered. I don't think that's necessarily true, because we'll always be finite. And so we'll always be digging deeper into the infinite mind of God. And I believe there are some things we'll never be able to get all the way. We'll always go, Wow. Okay, like Paul says in Romans 11, after he's talked about the sovereignty of God in Romans 9, human responsibility in chapter 10. Chapter 11, God will fulfill his plan, even his plan with Israel, and he ends that whole discussion not with reconciling sovereignty and human responsibility, but with saying, 
Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unfathomable are his ways. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He worships. In my opinion, I don't think Calvinism is the right reconciliation or resolution. I don't think Arminianism is the right reconciliation or resolution. I think worship is the right resolution of sovereignty and human responsibility. Okay, Matty, toss to you. Uh, you know that Piper did not make a mistake because he, he wrote a book about it. He actually put it into a book so called Spectacular Sin. If you're interested at some point, his, that's essentially his view, like Brian is saying, of sin is that God, uh, in a sense, created it, authored it, ordained it for his purposes. That's his view of sovereignty. So, okay. Well, um, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Um, the question, uh, this question says, seven-day creation story, question mark. And uh, so, uh, <laughs> yes. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go into a little more detail than that. Um, this is a difficult question, and I'm going to do my best. I am, uh, with the disclaimer that uh, my postgraduate degree is in theology and not in any sort of science at all, um, everything is just from some reading. They always have me, anything related to creation, they have me answer it because my dad is more of an expert in this than I am, but I will um, do my best. The big challenge when you look at Genesis 1 is it, it clearly, as God creates, he creates in six days and then there's a seventh day of rest and uh, each, each day falls on the other. You know, there was evening, there was morning, the first day, there was evening and there was morning the second day. There's a few problems that have emerged throughout time, particularly with scientific data coming available to us. How do we reconcile what it says in the Bible about creation being in seven days with what we understand from science, where we look at certain data and it seems to us that the earth is much, much older than would be indicated. And it also seems that it took a, a much longer time for all of these processes to happen. In other words, for people to come into being and for animals to come into being and all of these things. It doesn't seem like it was all crammed together there in a seven-day span as we look at it scientifically. Again, so the question is, how do we reconcile what we seem to be seeing in science with what we see in the scriptures, or at least how our scripture has traditionally been interpreted? Um, another just small problem is, if you look on the on the third day, God creates um, all of this vegetation, plants, things along those lines. On the fourth day, he creates um, the lights. He creates the sun and the moon and all of these things. Well, we, of course, know that plants require light in order to live. And so there's certain views of Genesis 1 that make that difficult if the third day has plants and the fourth day you have the sun, particularly if you've got a view where the days are each thousands and thousands of years, you have plants popping up with no lights in the sky for thousands of years. And so there's a number of challenges with uh, Genesis 1. Um, the main point I want to make is this, that there are evangelical Christian theologians that interpret Genesis 1 in a variety of different ways and that interpret the scientific data in a variety of different ways. All right? There's a couple of things that you can do. There's a, I'm going to walk through just a few views. One would be called uh, young earth creationism. That's the traditional evangelical Christian viewpoint. Prior to really 1900, uh, around that range, if you were a Christian, an evangelical especially, you were a young earth creationist. Um, 
The View came under a lot of attack in the 1920s. There was a famous trial that happened called the Scopes Monkey Trial. A school district in Tennessee, um, well, really an area in Tennessee, passed a law that a teacher could not teach anything that was opposed to the creation stories of Genesis. Well, as often happens, there was a group that went out and they found a test case. They found a guy that was willing to teach evolution in the schools. And uh, then they slapped him with a fine and he went to trial. And you have the famous trial uh, with William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow. And uh, Darrow is representing the defense, defending this teacher. Uh, Bryan is representing the viewpoint of creation. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is the creationists actually won the trial but they lost to the battle of public relations. So Darrow poked a lot of holes and asked a lot of questions about the issue of creation in seven days that made it sound in court at least ridiculous. But uh, the viewpoint of young earth creationism is essentially that the seven days in Genesis are a literal seven days. God created the world in those seven days. The genealogies as you walk through the scripture are complete, meaning that they lay out every person that had existed from Adam forward to Christ. Um, And so the earth is somewhere around 6,000 years old. That's the young earth creation view. So you say, well, what what about the scientific data? You've got, um, for example, radioactive dating. You have um, other geological features of the earth. For example, riverbeds that will deposit a layer of silt once a year. And you have some riverbeds that have uh, millions of layers in them. So What do we do with data like that that seems to indicate that the earth is older? There's a couple of ways to reconcile that. One, the young earth Earth creationists will look at the scientific data and try to find, you know, there are some problems sometimes with radioactive dating. Is the earth really that old based on radioactive dating? Um, Another popular way to answer that from the young earth creation perspective would be the earth just looks old. Uh, God made it to look a particular way, but it's not really that old. You know, there are, again, there may be challenges with understanding it that way, like why did God do that? Um, And the answer would be, well, he made Adam and Eve as full-grown people. Maybe he made the earth full-grown in a sense as well to look old. So that's one possibility. But there are also Christian uh, theologians, evangelicals, who do not hold to a young earth creation viewpoint. You don't have to be a liberal or, you know, a pagan in order to interpret it in a different way. And I want to make that... I want to make that clear, and the reason is because sometimes there there are, I would guess even in this church and on this staff, there are people who hold differing viewpoints on how do we interpret the scientific data and the um, data of Genesis. Here's here's where I would draw a boundary, and that is I believe that Genesis 1 and 2, they are inerrant scripture, and so unless there's a reason that I see from the text typically to interpret them in a different way, I'm going to interpret them literally. Um, I'm going to use historical and grammatical data from the text. So my priority structure is when I'm looking at these issues, first I go to the text and that's my supreme authority. Then I can look at general revelation and say, all right, what does God tell us about the world as I look at rocks, as I look at people, as I look at these things? And it may be I need to tweak not my understanding of what the text is. In other words, I'm not going to say, well, it's no longer inerrant, but I may say maybe my interpretation is what's lacking. Right? So there are... People that have said, well, it seems like radioactive dating, for example, is basically reliable. Um, It seems like the earth is older. So we're going to go ahead and say the earth is older. And that means a couple of things. Maybe the genealogies that we have, for example, are not 
complete genealogies. And there's, there's evidence of that. You have places in Scripture where you'll have a name inserted into one genealogy, same genealogy over here in Chronicles, and you look in Kings and that name isn't there. And the reason is because the, the chroniclers, as they're writing this, they're more concerned with giving us the important names that they see as significant rather than giving us every name. Right? If you list out your family tree, there might be one or two people you go, we're going to take old Uncle Ned out of there, right? We want, we want to put in the important people that we want people to know are in there. And it's not that the Bible is using uh, selective genealogies in that sense. It's that they have a theological point to make often. And so they're using names that will mean something to their readers theologically and spiritually. And they may not list every single name. With the book of Genesis in particular, the seven-day creation theory, there's a couple, quickly a couple options. You can interpret, some people interpret the word day, the Hebrew word yom. In some cases, it can refer to a longer period of time. And so some people will say, well, the earth is old, but God created in these seven, what they call day ages. Uh, they were uh, a yom that lasted longer. Again, big problem with that is you have the plants being created before the sun. So what do the plants do? I guess you would say God sustained them for that period of time somehow, or there was light. Another option, some will say these days were literal days, but they were days in which God proclaimed what was going to happen. In other words, God says on that day, let there be light. And there was, and just like often throughout the scripture, when God's word goes forth, it's as if it happened. And so uh, God's word goes forth and creation begins to move. And it may take several thousand or million years for these things to happen, but God spoke it forth and then it happened. Um, one other possible option that some people have gone to is simply that the creation story is not fundamentally meant to be a literal account of the order and the timing in which God created it, but it happens to be very similar to some Babylonian and Egyptian texts talking about creation, except talking about how the world spontaneously generated. And they would say, no, God instructed Moses to write this in that format. It's like a, a limerick or a poem. If I say roses are red, violets are blue, you recognize that form. There's a form used in Genesis, but God uses it to indicate Marduk didn't create the world. The world didn't generate out of the dead body of a big dragon, right? The, the world came from God who made it, and he's better and greater than everybody else. And so that's one option as well is that it's inerrant and it's true, but it's not, its intent is not to say day one, two, three, four, five, God did this, 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 and this. But the idea is God did it, and he did these things. He made these things, the, the plants, the animals, the people, not this other God. And so it's a, a literary form. So there's a variety of options. Yes. Yeah. Just a couple more, and then we'll yeah. synthesize. Okay. Yeah. Let me give you just a couple other options that are out there. One is it's called gap theory. So Genesis 1 1, get creation of the universe, and then uh, some intervention, maybe. Satan falling, uh, creating chaos within God's created universe. The rest of uh, the Genesis 1 account, God is recreating, putting things back in order. It's gap theory. That's a possibility. Um, Another is um, that, uh, if you think about it, um, Moses wrote this account, best as we can tell from Old Testament literature. Moses didn't actually see creation, though, right? Because he lives much later in time. So... uh, it could be that what you've got in this account is God has put on, a, uh, in a sense, a, a drama for him. You know, it's like the passion play, whatever. It's a series of time that's collapsed. So what Moses experienced was day one, God showed him this. Then he went to bed. Day two, God showed him this. Day three, so he you know, had an experience like that. 
One other possibility is what you have actually, Genesis 1-1, is you have creation of the universe, and then Genesis 1-2 and following, you have the preparation of uh, the land. Okay, because the word for earth and the word for land is the same. It's Ha'eretz. The name of the uh, national newspaper in Israel is Ha'eretz. That is the land, the promised land. You look at the dimensions of promised land, dimensions that are described in Genesis 1 and 2 of Eden. They're the same. It could be that what's happened is you have the creation of the world and you've got plants and animals and so forth living different places, but then God creates or prepares the promised land, the garden, for human habitation at that point in time. That's a possibility. Uh, what, what Matt's driving at with these different options is wh- where these are disagreements are, these are disagreements of interpretation. What the Bible is very clear on is God created, and he created out of nothing. It's Hebrews. And the reason anything exists is because God created, and that helps us understand a cause and effect universe. And we see an effect, which is the world. We see design in it. We see morality in it. We see all kinds of things in it. What's, what's a, an adequate cause for that? And the Bible says that is God. Outside of time, outside of matter, acting and creating out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Okay. You want to, any other yeah. synthesis on that? Well, I mean, yeah, and we're, we're just at our, our time mark, but <laughs> that was essentially the point of all of this is that as you think about these issues, keep in mind the scripture is inerrant, but my interpretation of it isn't necessarily. Also, science itself is not by any means inerrant, and it changes, and it, it, new discoveries come to shape. So that's why I would say our, our first and foremost understanding comes from the Bible. But then we do look at general revelation and say, okay, maybe there's things God revealed to us through uh, science and through general the world that we need to tweak my understanding of Scripture. Case in point would be what we call the Copernican Revolution. You know, it used to be understood that everything revolved around the earth, right? And you read the Scripture and, okay, the sun, Psalm 19, the sun goes in its orbit across the sky. Well, as uh, Galileo, Copernicus, they're studying this, they begin to realize wait a second, the earth seems to revolve around the sun. Well, that was a major shakeup to their theology um, because they understood that the universe was created for man by God. And so if we revolve around something else, doesn't that affect our place in the universe? Doesn't that affect our understanding of who we are and all those things? Well, as they, as they looked at it, they realized, well, no, not necessarily. It's okay that the Bible sometimes uses what we call phenomenological language. It, it describes things as they appear um, for the sake of us who have a hard time understanding things as they really are. And so um, that's okay. And it doesn't, so we have to sometimes reshape our interpretations and our theology, but the scripture remains true. One more thing, in the whole creation thing, you've got uh, the, the big idea, God created. It wasn't by chance, it wasn't by gods from these other nations. The other big thing to not miss is that you can't walk away from Genesis 1 and 2 and escape the reality that uh, God very clearly created man uniquely. Man is the one thing made in the image of God, made to rule, distinct from animals. So as we talk about these different theories, there's some things that are outside the bounds, and one of them is that God wasn't the creator. The other thing that's outside the bounds is that man is nothing more than a glorified monkey. That's however we got our bodies, however we developed, whether God formed us or however that worked, significant thing is we are not a glorified monkey. We, we are unique in all of creation. We are distinct. We're not a mere animal. So uh, like Matt's laying out, there's different ways evangelicals can interpret the text, but there's some boundaries that the text presents on us that we want to maintain. So just wanted to 
add that one. I think we're out of time. We'll stay up here for just a minute. Let me make an observation. Statistically speaking, I'm very confident that we didn't answer your question. Okay. So uh, what we're going to do, we haven't done this in the past, but I'm looking at the stack of um, questions. And what I think we will do is we will kind of just begin the process. We've been wanting to create uh, a facts section on our website. So what we'll do is we're going to take your questions and progressively work our way through it. I, there are so many here that, you know, we didn't get it to them this morning. We're not going to finish all these in a year. There's a lot of work to do here, but uh, there were real, there were so many really good questions that come up so often when we have sessions like this, that what we will do is we will begin to progressively try to work through these questions. So, you know, check our website and keep checking back and, and we'll begin working on that. And I'm, I apologize if we didn't get to uh, your stuff. We tried to start with the questions that related to our previous topic and that kind of um, pushed us over. Because Blake and Matt went too long. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm going to pray for us. Father, I pray that you would guide us into truth. I pray that we would be humble and we would be teachable and we would acknowledge that um, you know all things and our capacities are limited. No matter how smart or intelligent we think we are, you are so great and so awesome and uh, so wise and knowing that you could, out of nothing, create such a complex universe, that you could create such uh, complex individuals such as we are. We humbly worship you. We thank you for giving us time to think about you and to discuss uh, what we understand and what we don't understand. I pray, Father, that you would receive even this time together as an act of worship. In Christ's name, amen.